Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 19 for the third quarter of January 2012. The topic for today is about some of the interesting claims of John Lear. I gave a disclaimer in the January 1st episode on Greg Braden that bears repeating here. I'm addressing the claims, not the person. I'm an equal opportunities disher of common sense, and if anyone makes a claim, it's fair game to look into it. That said, because I'm talking about the claims of one person in particular, it's important to know a little bit about the guy. From what I've been able to gather, John Lear is the son of the famous inventor of the Learjet, Bill Lear. The son, John, is presently a retired airline captain with over 19,000 hours of flight time, and he's flown over 100 different types of planes. He's claimed to be the only pilot to hold every FAA airplane certificate, and he flew secret missions for the CIA in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. The man also holds 17 world records, including for speed. So the guy is a very accomplished pilot, and definitely knows his way around airplanes. It's for reasons like that that people will often listen to what he has to say. He's the UFO advocate's perfect argument from authority, meaning that he can be presented as a pilot who obviously knows everything about airplanes, and so obviously is an authority about what can't be known about an airplane. I refer you to my second podcast episode for how I feel about arguments from authority, specifically with regards to UFO cases. I may do a series later on on logical fallacies used by purveyors of woo, in particular with astronomy, but that's a topic for a different episode, or series of episodes. Anyway, John threw away his credibility when he became friends with Bob Lazar back in 1988, and since then he's become an ardent believer in UFOs, the alien presence on Earth, soul catchers on the moon, along with a lunar atmosphere and mining operations, anti-gravity propulsion systems from bean ships, Area 51 and 52, Einstein was completely wrong, 9-11 truth, crop circles, the Kennedy assassination, and those are just a few things. He claims he was fired from his airline job because of these beliefs. Now, I've listened to over 20 hours of interviews with John Lear. This is why this podcast is coming out a few hours late. I've listened to these 20 hours three times. It's a lot of material, and I'm distilling that in this episode to really focus on three of John's claims in particular, and they're all sort of related. First, the environment of Venus. Second, the atmosphere of the moon. And third, the moon's origin and formation. If enough of you like this topic and the ideas of John Lear, please let me know in the feedback and I'll plan another episode. So let's get right to it. One of the claims of John is that every single planet and a lot of moons in the solar system are habitable, just like Earth. He claims that the only gas giant in the solar system is NASA. He says that claims that Mercury is too hot on the sun-facing side, Venus is incredibly hot with a heavy atmosphere, or that Pluto is too cold are just wrong, according to John. At least some of the evidence for at least the Venus claims comes not from careful telescopic observations or the results of careful space probe data, but from a remote viewing class that he took. 
the thing right out of their mouth was every single one of them said, my gosh, that's beautiful. I had no idea, you know. And then one of them said, boy, that's like South Africa. You know, it was green and beautiful and uh, just all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, beautiful scenery there. <clears throat> it's not like, you know, the sulfuric acid covered uh, 90 bars of pressure volcanic spewed. I think that came about in the late 50s when it was decided that uh, we should not know that there's anybody on Venus. And I can imagine a general sitting around with his staff and saying, now, folks, uh, gentlemen, uh, we have to make Venus as unpalatable as possible. I need some ideas here. And so one guy says, well, how about we make the atmosphere sulfuric acid? Great, great. <laughs> That's good. Let's have some more ideas here. Well, how about we make it it's too, all It's too hot. How about we make it to all volcanic uh, uh, lava? Great, great. Uh, come on. Let's think outside the box here. Come on. Let's hear some more ideas. Well, how about we make it uh, 100 bars of pressure? And the general says, nah, 100 bars sounds a little phony. How about 90 bars? And uh, they says, yeah, yeah, okay, that's good. We got a planet here. Now what else? And they said, uh, they probably said, well, why don't we say that everybody that prints a picture of Venus, we use the false color of gold or yellow. That'll get everybody to thinking, you know, that it's molten lava. And that's exactly what happened. I've said it before, so I'll get the obligatory, I'd really like a sample of what he's smoking out of the way. With that said... There are many things in there, and many ways to go about addressing them. I'll first take the easy one, the claim that Venus is always presented in false color, looking goldenish to make people think of lava. That's simply not true. Venus' clouds are that color. People from around the world throughout history have colored Venus as a golden white, and a narrow-angle telescope also known as high magnification, will resolve it as golden in color, much like Jupiter or Saturn. The idea that it was one country's government or a group of small military or space officials in the 1950s or the 1900s or 1700s or whenever decided that everyone was going to portray Venus in a false yellowish color to hide human colonies on it is just wrong. It's it's just wrong. As to what the clouds are made of, this is something that a science club could figure out with a little doing. I've seen actually high school science projects where people have done things like this. What you need is a spectrometer. This is a device that splits light into its component colors and measures how strong the light is at each wavelength. If you have a decent spectrometer and you aim it through a telescope at Venus, you'll be able to get an idea of the major components of its atmosphere. You would find that it's very rich in carbon dioxide, unlike Earth, and it has almost no molecular nitrogen, unlike Earth. As for the other things, like the lava plains, volcanoes, and high surface pressure, well, that is something that had to wait for the space age to figure out because it has such a thick atmosphere. So you do kind of have to trust NASA and the Russian Space Agency for that information. But those other things are just wrong. And if you lack those other things, then you have to start questioning John's other claims. So moving a little bit closer to home, there are many things that John claims about the moon, including that there's a soul harvester up there, but it doesn't work if someone dies under any amount of water. That's why mariners who drown at sea are called lost souls. 
Anyway, the claim that I wanted to address next is not about soul harvesting, but what he thinks about the atmosphere. He thinks that there is an atmosphere on the moon, with clouds, and that it's equivalent to about 18,000 feet on Earth, which makes the sky blue on the moon. And uh, there is an atmosphere on the moon. It's uh, equal to about 18,000 feet on Earth. As a matter of fact, they could have taken off their helmets and breathed for a little while. Oh, my God. Now, this is something that I never thought I'd do or say this, but I'm going to actually use Richard Hoagland to explain why John is wrong. It moves at about 2,000 miles an hour. Right. The moon is about 2,000 miles in diameter, so it moves its own diameter every hour in orbit around the Earth. Occasionally, it will, it will move in front of a bright star. As it does, the star will wink out at one edge, and then about an hour later, depending upon where it crosses, it'll come back at the other side. It winks out really almost instantly. If there was an atmosphere... Over a quarter million miles, the, the star would twinkle violently for several seconds before it disappeared because the atmosphere would be like the Earth's atmosphere, where if you look across the valley, I'm sitting here at roughly 6,500 feet tonight looking down on the Rio Grande Valley, and even only a few thousand feet up, you can see the, the streetlights and the car lights twinkling because of the heat effects of the Earth's atmosphere. To prove that I'm not against people, but rather their claims, I'm going to say this with all quote-mining applicable foresight. Hoagland is 100% correct in this case. It's actually kind of disturbing when Richard Hoagland is the sane person in the room. To repeat his explanation, if you have any air around a rocky object, then when light passes behind it, the light is going to dim a bit before going out. If there's no atmosphere, then it's like a light switch. The light goes or stays on, and then it goes off when it goes behind the object. This is exactly the mechanism used to figure out how big extrasolar planet atmospheres are, the shapes and sizes of asteroids, and how dense Saturn's rings are and all sorts of other things. It's really kind of a basic concept. We call it occulting when one object passes in front of another. If you have an atmosphere around the moon, then you're going to see a star start to dim before it gets behind the surface. It doesn't. But Lear refuses to accept it, and in that interview, he continued to claim that the moon does indeed have a breathable atmosphere. His proposed test is to send both him and Richard Hoagland to the moon, and he won't wear a spacesuit. I definitely agree with sending both of them off-planet, but that's a different issue. I think this would be an opportune time to point out Lear's reaction when confronted by callers and not just Richard Hoagland on these kinds of issues. Okay, it's just about asking, how have all the astrophysicists made mistakes about the planets, and how come all the astronomers that we have at SETI have not picked up a single transmission from all these inhabited planets? This is beyond the pale. It doesn't make sense, and this is not a personal assault. I'm asking you an honest question, how they've not picked up at least the serious people from SETI, the astronomers, the astrophysicists, got it all wrong, and not one has picked up a transmission. And I'll listen to your answer on the radio. Thank you, John. Okay, take it away, John. I don't know. <laughs> it's as simple as that. It just is. It just is. 
It's interesting that he doesn't actually try to argue or further explain himself when confronted by someone. He just says, I don't know, it just is the way it is. He doesn't have any sort of rationalization mechanism that you would see in someone like Richard Hoagland, for example. That said, the last claim that I wanted to address in this episode is how the moon got here. You'll note the way I stated that, got here, as opposed to formed. In the beginning, the moon did not spring forth from the Pacific Ocean. The moon was not passing by Earth and captured by its gravity uh, and locked into rotational lock. In the beginning, the moon was towed here from somewhere else and placed by a very large machine into orbit around the Earth in rotational lock. His evidence for this is in stories that he's interpreted as there having been a time without a moon in recorded history, and then also a book that now sells used from Amazon for over $200 called The Ringmakers of Saturn by Norman Berggren, where Norman basically blew up photographs beyond their limits, squinted his eyes, and said there was a blob and that's a spaceship. But more on that in a moment. So Lear claims that the moon was towed here and placed into orbit by enormously powerful engines. It just so happens that Richard Hoagland was on Coast to Coast on January 5th, 2012, and stated unequivocally that the two Grail satellites that just entered orbit this month around the moon are trying to find the moon's engines inside of it, and those engines just so happen to be at 19.5 degrees. More on that in a future episode. So how did the moon get here? How did it form? I wanted to end with this major claim of Lear's because it illustrates something of how science works. The answer is that we don't know. We definitely have ideas. In fact, there are five with which I'm familiar. First is that the moon formed with Earth the way that the planets did. I call this the Big Sister. Second is that the moon was captured by Earth's gravity in what I call the Big Grip. Third is that Earth was spinning so quickly after it formed, the moon effectively popped off through mitosis in what I call the big squirt. Fourth is that a Mars-sized object crashed into Earth at an angle and the moon formed out of the debris. That one is called the big splash. More recently, people have proposed that there was enough radioactive material early in Earth's mantle that a nuclear reaction occurred, spewing the material out in what I would call a big burp. You'll notice that none of these is that the moon sprang forth from the Pacific Ocean like Athena springing forth from Zeus's skull, fully formed. No one thinks that that's a model for how it works, so presenting it is actually a straw man argument that Lear is doing. So we have all of these ideas. How do we know which is what happened? The answer is that every single one of these would make different predictions about composition, orbital dynamics, age, structure, and other things about the moon. We can test these. If the evidence found does not fit the hypothesis, then the hypothesis needs to be adjusted in order to account for that new evidence. If the hypothesis can't be adjusted to incorporate it, then it's thrown out. At this point, the majority of the evidence supports the big splash. There are still a few things that can't be wholly explained by the hypothesis, but it's by far the best one that we have. So at that point, it comes down to this false dichotomy that I'm setting up. Do you A. Accept a natural explanation that predicts the vast majority of all the evidence that we've found, 
or do you b take a special pleading argument for which there is no evidence and say that a technologically superior civilization towed the moon into place around Earth for some reason or another, probably because of the six-mile-high soul harvester inside of a crater, but it doesn't work when someone dies underwater. Now, I'm not telling you which one of these options to choose. You have to make that decision on your own. With that in mind, I said there were three main claims I wanted to address in this episode. I also would like to use this to bring up a general topic of pareidolia. I've mentioned the concept before, especially in the last episode about ancient aliens, but I don't think I've actually gone into any depth on it. Fear not. I'll do more so in future episodes about Richard Hoagland and Andrew Basiago. But for now, let's go into it because at least half of John's evidence for his claims falls into this category. First, it bears mentioning that pareidolia is a difficult word to spell unless you know the trick. I couldn't figure it out for a few years. Then I realized that the vowels are in alphabetical order. You have a P and then A. After that, you have a consonant R, but then the vowels E-I, then a D, and then O. If you add Lia on the end, you've got pareidolia. So if you take out the consonants, which are easy to sound out anyway, and you add a Leah on the end, you have A-E-I-O. P-A-R-E-I-D-O-L-I-A. With the spelling lesson out of the way, pareidolia is the process of seeing a pattern and recognizing it as something that's not actually there. A colon and a closing parenthesis is pareidoliaized to be a smiling face. In fact, two dots and a line are almost universally seen as a face, as the human brain is practically hardwired to see faces. Similarly, if you're scouring photographs for evidence of aliens or habitation or machinery or anything that doesn't fit the official story, you are bound to find something that looks like something that your brain will convince you it is. That's how we get Kermit the Frog on Mars in the last episode, linked up to in the show notes for that episode. Not that I think that someone was looking at pictures and trying to find a Muppet on Mars. If you look through any of the numerous and very lengthy pages that John's put online, that I'll link to in the show notes, almost all of the photos are pareidolia. In some cases, it's actually presented at true resolution, as in one pixel on the camera is one pixel on the screen. But in many cases, the images are greatly expanded so that they're very pixelated. They're also compressed because once they expand them and blow them up, the file size is huge. So they have to compress them with image compression. It's these compression artifacts and the pixelation that are interpreted through pareidolia to be things like mining operations on Mars or the Moon. I'm not making this up. I'll post a direct example of the city at Tithonia, Mars, in the show notes. The best advice that I can give is that when being confronted with an image that someone says is something fantastic, is to try to obtain the original source of the image, the original image itself, the original highest quality and highest resolution. What you don't want is something that looks as though it was printed on a rag that went through the wash too many times and then blown up to be the size of a bus. If you can, and even if you can't get that photo, the next thing to figure out is the scale. I'm looking at the City of Tithonia stuff as I'm talking here. Okay, I'll be honest. As I'm writing this to be recorded in a few hours, and they're showing a small image with obvious compression artifacts, and no way to know the actual scale. 
They're presenting it as a city and a manufacturing plant with staircases and homes and all this other stuff as several hundred feet across. But for all I know, it could be five centimeters or two inches high because to me, it actually kind of looks like the side of a small rock. But there's no scale and there's no mention of where they got the original image. The next thing is that many people will make much ado about parallel lines and geometric shapes in these kinds of pareidolia. What on earth would be a good indication of civilization, these geometric shapes and parallel lines, in space pictures is often an excellent indicator for pixelation, especially when people are making these types of fantastic claims. They've blown up the image so much and then compressed it on disk that these parallel lines and geometric shapes are both artifacts from compression and the remnants of the original, now blown up, gigantic pixels. Again, in this Tithonia example, they're pointing out parallel lines and saying that it's a staircase. But if you overlay a grid over the entire image, the size of their staircase being one grid point, then all of the geometry and parallel lines fall in columns and rows like the staircase. That just means it's pixelation. Now, without the original pictures, it's impossible to prove that that's what's going on, but it's a much more likely scenario than a staircase and a city with an ancient ruins on Mars. With some of Lear's claims, he does point to specific areas on the moon, but when they're actually imaged with modern equipment, his claims seem to melt away. He compensates for that by saying that it's simply NASA airbrushing out the features. As a way to wrap up this topic for now, I want to point out that this podcast show, not just this episode, I try to emphasize that you don't have to take my word for something. You can go and make independent observations for many of the things I discuss. You can go to the basic physics textbooks or optics textbooks or environmental textbooks or Wikipedia, and you can find these basic principles that are stated and apply to many, many things. If someone claims that they don't apply in their case, then that doesn't just mean that they would be right about their case. That would mean that all of the evidence, all of these other things that these basic principles apply to are wrong. To that end, we get to the point of evidence. What counts as evidence for a claim, and why does someone believe it? In addition to the evidence that I mentioned before, the remote viewing, the past civilizations, fiction or legends, and pareidoliaized images, I present this final clip as a summary for much of the evidence for John Lear's claims. Can you tell us basically a general idea what's your source of information on those two programs? I mean, how do you know? How do you know this stuff? I have some excellent sources. Okay. Uh, I can't remember who they are. I think uh, one of them was Cool Hand, and one of them was SoCal's only. I don't know them only by the web. web. Okay, so these are guys that are on the web that are telling you this stuff. Right. This week's question comes from Timek, and I hope I pronounced that right, or at least put the accent on the correct syllable, who's from Australia. They ask, my question is why phases of the moon are not vertical when seen from Earth, as in the lit up part's top end is not directly above the bottom of the crescent. 
This is especially confusing when both the sun and the moon are visible at the same time. Is it the tilt of the earth or the fact that I'm not on the equator? I'm in Australia. This is just a note to people who send these in. If you're asking a question about something visual, it would be amazingly helpful if you included a diagram. That said, I think what you're asking is why the crescent moon isn't sort of straight up and down, either parallel or perpendicular to the horizon. The answer has to do with why we have phases at all. The moon is always lit 50% by the sun. From Earth, because of how the moon orbits us, we see this as phases. What this also means is that the center part of the moon that shows the most light is always going to be directly aimed towards the sun in the sky. What I mean by that is, say you have kind of a thick crescent. It's thin at the tips, and then you get to the fattest part of the moon at the center, between the two tips. You will be able to draw a straight line through the start of the fattest part to the end of the fattest part, directly on towards the sun. Another way to think of this is the opposite case. If you have a crescent moon, draw a straight line directly through the tips of the crescent. If you draw a line perpendicular to that one, it will hit the sun. As you go through the year, the sun will only be setting due west and rising due east on the solstices. During summer, it will rise and set closer to your hemisphere's pole from due east or due west. During the winter, it will rise and set closer to the other hemisphere's pole. I'll actually be addressing that in a future episode, but that's a future episode. Anyway, this means that a line through the tips of the crescent will only point directly north and south on rare occasions. Otherwise, it's going to be somewhat off. I hope that actually answers your question. If it's not quite what you were asking, please email me again and I'll try to answer your real question. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, though the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. In terms of feedback, generally speaking, the iTunes feedback, at least on the U.S. store, is on its second page already, and I do greatly appreciate what people have written both there and on other country stores. I'm still looking for a way to agglomerate all the store's feedback into one interface so that I don't have to go to a different country, find the podcast, read the feedback, go to another country, find the podcast, see if there's feedback, go to another country, etc., etc., etc. If anyone knows a way to do this, please let me know. Related to an older episode, I have feedback from Dave R. from Washington State who says, You mention 17th and 18th century astronomer Sir Edmund... Halley, or Haley, in a couple of podcasts, but you mispronounce his name as Haley, as in the 1950s rocker Bill Haley, rather than rhyming with Valley, as in Halley. Sorry to be so picky, but it's a pet peeve of mine. Dave may have a point, but I would like to point out that it's commonly pronounced as the way rhyming with Valley, about as often as it's pronounced Haley. Also, the spellings of his name during his lifetime varied considerably, so the actual correct pronunciation is not certain, at least according to the all-knowing Wikipedia. Feedback from John C. from the blog, again related to pronunciation. He says that the pronunciation of the smiley face crater on Mars is known not as Gale, but as Gale. 
So this is a case where you have one crater spelled G-A-L-E. That's the one that the current Mars rover is en route to. However, you have another crater spelled G-A-L-L-E. So what I did was I looked up a pronunciation guide for that particular astronomer's last name and came up with Galle. Um, I apologize if I slightly mispronounced that, but at least it's closer than what I had before. In terms of feedback related specifically to last week's topic on ancient aliens with the dumbass, on my blog, the feedback has perhaps been expectedly dominated by Michael Horn and his supporters and their support for the alleged UFO contactee Billy Meyer. I'm not going to really go into this because I do plan at least doing one episode in the future on some of the claims of Billy Meyer, but I did want to take this opportunity to point out that if you're going to argue, stick to the point. If you're going to post a comment to an episode about ancient aliens, and then you say that you're interested in examining the evidence for ancient aliens, don't in the very next reply ignore that and start talking about your own special modern UFO case. That's not how to argue, and it's liable to get future posts blocked. Just saying that. In terms of general feedback to the show, I have a piece of feedback from Leonard, who writes concerning the title of the podcast. He says, There has not been a whole lot of astronomy in your podcast. I would estimate about one-fourth is related to astronomy. From the sounds of it, the coming year will mostly be dedicated to December 21st and coast-to-coast rhetoric. As such, why the name Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy? Just a thought while I was trying to categorize your January 5th blog page, Psychic Predictions Roundup, on StumbleUpon. I just went with the generic science category. I didn't really think of the astronomy category as it would fit. Perhaps Exposing Pseudo-Intelligence. But that would end up with jokes and snide comments against you by those who don't like the show. Thanks for the feedback, Leonard, and I would point out that probably the uh, good category for that particular blog post would have been the skeptics category. The rest of my response to Leonard really lies in how the astronomy focus is focused first, and second on how one classifies episodes. So I call myself an astrogeophysicist because I came from an astronomy and astrophysics background, but I study planetary surfaces. So my focus is on astronomy geophysical things, as well as some of the basic physics, but usually the basic physics as it relates to astronomy. That's just what my skill set is and what I'm interested in. With that in mind, if you go back and classify the older episodes, which I actually have done and do so that I don't do something like a full month of creationist claims or Apollo Moonhook stuff, everything fits within that broad category. Creationist claims about magnetic fields has to do with geophysics. The moon hoax has to do with astronomy and space exploration. The interview last episode was about aliens. I use Coast to Coast or other clips when I can in order to break up the episode so that it's not just me lecturing for around 30 minutes or so. Uh, At the moment, 31 and a half minutes. I don't really want to do that, and you probably don't want me to do that. Though, in classes, students in the university pay me to do that, but that's a different forum. The same is generally true for my blog, but I write posts there when I have time and when something comes up that interests me. I'm interested in the public perception of science, in science skepticism and scientific skepticism, and promoting the way real science is done. 
So the 2011 Psychic Roundup fits into skepticism. My posts about Alex Securis fit into how science is done. In this podcast, since episodes are more rare and they take much longer to put together and produce, I'm really only focused on the astronomy, geology, and physics stuff. But that isn't to say that I won't have an episode here or there that has to do more broadly with science or how it's done. I do have an interview promise from Phil Plate to talk about the difference between knowing something is quote-unquote true in science versus a more practical metric in everyday life and skepticism. I also have an interview promise from Pamela Gay about astronomy education and outreach. In the next episode, there should be an interview with someone who's been combating young earth creationism as a high school student. I do this podcast because it's something that I'm interested in, and so the topics will reflect that, even though the title is not necessarily broad enough to do so. With that long feedback section, it brings us to The Puzzler, where each episode I attempt to ask a critical thinking question based at least loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. Now, the first last week's puzzler, or last episode from January 1st, dealt with one of the claims of Greg Braden. He claims the magnetic field put out by the heart is about 5,000 times stronger than that of the brain. First, is this true? The second part of the puzzler is that Braden claims that because the heart is where we have our feelings and beliefs, and that we communicate these through magnetic field, of which the heart connects to a broader sense of the broader field around us. So let's say the field strength of the human heart is about 10 picotesla at the surface of the human body. At what distance from the surface of the chest is the magnetic field of the heart equal to the field of Earth? If we take an average value of Earth's magnetic field, 100 microteslas. And with that in mind, does any of what Braden claims here make sense? So congratulations goes to Chu on the SGU boards for being the first to come up with the right answer within about two hours of posting the episode, so he might have actually listened to it this time. The solution is that the first part is roughly true based on the numbers that I found for the strength of the heart at the surface of the body and the strength of the brain's magnetic field at the surface of the body. The reason I said that you have to be careful in defining your terms is that stating a magnetic field is some number strong is meaningless without a distance. Magnetic fields, just like gravity, follow an inverse square law. This means that if you're two times farther away from a source, the strength is going to be one quarter. If you're three times farther away, then it's one ninth. Four times farther away, one sixteenth, and so on. It's one over the distance squared. So you have to define where you're measuring the field. This is a case where you had to get the right answer for the first part in order to get it right for the second part. Earth's field isn't generally going to change over a few inches once you're already at the surface of the planet. So, you have to take the heart's distance from the surface of the chest, using the value I gave you, and then, if you get two times closer to the heart, you increase its magnetic field by a factor of four. Get ten times closer, and you increase the field by a factor of a hundred. If you do the math, or maths if you're Australian then you would need to get about a factor of 3,000 closer to the heart than the chest in order to have the field equal to that of Earth. That's if you treat the heart as a point source for a magnetic field, which you can't. 
Given all of that, no, Braden's claims do not make any sense. The impact of the human heart's magnetic field on the magnetic field of Earth around it is something along the lines of a grain of sand hitting a car. This week, the main segment was on stuff related to the Moon, Venus, and Pareidolia, but basically the claims of John Lear. As with the puzzler in episode 17 on Greg Braden, this one is going to deal with a claim that I did not address in this episode of John Lear. Lear claims that the surface gravity of the Moon is two-thirds that of Earth, not one-sixth. What is an experiment that you could do with any of the available data or an observation that you could make with any available data that would show what the gravity is on the surface of the moon. Try to figure out the answer? Send it in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the 1st of February episode. For announcements this quarter, really the main thing to say is that I've started a Facebook fan page for the podcast. You can find it by searching on Facebook for Exposing Pseudoastronomy. And if you're looking to friend me because of this podcast, I would really ask that you just fan the Facebook page instead. I'm kind of weird in that I actually want to know people that I friend. I've also joined up with the newfangled social media thing that is Twitter. I have my own Twitter account, Dr. Astro Stew. That's D-R-A-S-T-R-O-S-T-U. And or you can follow the podcast Twitter account, Pseudo Astro. P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. Related to those, I've added the Facebook feed to the podcast website, and although I'm sure it's quite simple, I haven't yet figured out how to add the Twitter feed. If someone could send me a link on how to do it, I'd appreciate that. You also may see a few tweaks to the website over the next couple of weeks, if you're the kind of person who ever visits it. It's not going to be a radical change, but I'm going to at least be adding something of an index page that has different topics and then episodes to talk about those topics. So sort of an index to all of the 2012 stuff or the creationist stuff. I also wanted to say that this has been an incredibly busy month for me. A uh, heck of a month to decide to do four regular episodes. Uh, so I may not have responded if you've sent me email yet. Fear not, it's still in the inbox and I will respond at some point. And finally, I'd like to announce that part of the reason that this month has been incredibly busy for me is that I've been working on launching a project with Pamela Gay in conjunction with Phil Plate, Bat Astronomy, and Fraser Kane of Universe Today. It's called CosmoQuest and can be found at CosmoQuest.org. It's still in an infancy with a lot of content yet to be added, but what I've been working on with her is what I'm the science co-lead for. It's under the Citizen Science section, and it's called Moon Mappers. The idea is to use very, very high-resolution imagery of the moon, much higher than anything John Lear could get from a telescope on Earth, in order to help us to identify features, mostly craters. In one of the tasks, called Simply Craters, you're just identifying pretty much everything on your own. In the Man vs. Machine interface... I've run an automated crater detection code on the images, and you're asked to fix the machine. Fixing its markings, removing ones that it said was a crater but isn't, and then finding ones that it missed. As this podcast goes out on Monday, January 16th, 2012, we're in a soft launch phase where we're starting to do science with data, but we still need to get people to give us advice on working out some of the bugs, giving feedback on what could be better, and all that other fun stuff. 
We're also trying to build up a user base, so if you at all enjoy Cosmo Quest, or especially the Moon Mappers project that I'm involved in, please tell everyone about it. So if you're at all interested, please head over to CosmoQuest.org. Scroll over to the Citizen Science section and click on Moon Mappers, and let us know what you think. That wraps up this topic for the 19th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast, a Robbins Car Wash Incorporated production. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. I read every email, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please write a review and rate it on iTunes. Also tell your friends, family, frenemies, and all of the souls that you visit in the Soul Catcher on the Moon. <laughs>